Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which we play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, we will be discussing Seamus by Synapse Software. What exactly is Seamus shooting in this game? Listen to this episode to find the answer to this question. If you have found Sprite Castle through Player Missile, uh, then I'd like to welcome you. Player Missile is an Atari themed podcast, and it just so happens that Rob over at Player Missile and I both happen to be covering Seamus this month. If you want to get a Atari 8-bit perspective on the game, you might want to go check out Antic Podcast. You know, I honestly believe originally all home computer users love their their personal brand of home computer, and that's still the case. But as the Beatles once said, there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friends. Even though I do a Commodore 64 podcast, I do have an Apple II uh, system set up right next to my Commodore. I do have other old computers. Uh, I have been playing around with the Atari 8-bit systems on the uh, Mist FPGA. So even though all these computers are different and everybody has their loyalty, they all uh, share some great quality games, some great libraries. So as far as being in love with the system, I will always be in love with the Commodore 64. But uh, when it comes to the media that I consume, I consider myself to be pretty platform agnostic. So now one thing that's funny is Player Missile is hosted by a fellow named Rob. My name is Rob, and this game was suggested to me by another Rob, Mr. Rob Sherwin. Now, if you don't know Rob Sherwin, he is um, uh, pretty well known in the interactive fiction community. He has written several award-winning games, and I will put a link to uh, Rob Sherwin's IF Wiki entry so you can check out some of his games. He is currently uh, working on a new game called Cyber Ganked, which should be out uh, maybe late this year or possibly uh, early next year. So anyway, thanks to Rob Sherwin for the recommendation. Before we get started talking about this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. I found a question from Rich from Denver on the voice mailbox line this week. Rich asks, what is a door game? He said he's heard the term door game mentioned on a few podcasts, and he was curious about those. So uh, what a BBS door game is, is um, BBS software were the bulletin board systems that we all called uh, with our modems. But those the, the actual bulletin board software only did a certain amount of things that allowed you to post messages, to leave feedback, and send messages to other users, and upload and download files, things like that. Um, but what some BBS programs came up with was what was called a door. And literally, if you think of it like a door uh, opening up and giving you access to something else, um, what the door did was hand the BBS off to another program. And so what people did was develop what they called door games. So these were games that you could play whenever you called a BBS. Uh, you would go to a certain part of the menu and, and select these games. And then the BBS basically was handing itself off to this game. You could play the game, and when you were done, you returned back to the BBS. Now, these aren't um, 
online games like you think of now, like Flash, uh, you know, type games or interactive type games. These were all basically, most of them were strategy type games, um, and they allowed you to make so many moves per day or some of them uh, per call. So you might call a BBS um, and let's say you're playing some kind of war game. Uh, you could like imagine a uh, online version of risk between you and a few other people. So you would call to the BBS and you would be allowed to make so many moves and then your turn was done for the day. And each other person would also be able to call the BBS and make their turns uh, on that same day. And then the next day, the game would reset and you could make additional moves. Now there were um, some, there were lots and lots of door games out there. Some of the most popular ones I remember were legend of the red dragon or L O R D Lord. We all called that. There was trade wars, 2002 solar realms, elite and barren realms, elite. And then one that I really remember playing a lot was called uh, dope wars, um, which was, they, they actually uh, have ported this over to, they ported it to the PC. There's online versions you can play today, but this was a um, kind of based on the old type hand game. And if you're not familiar with that, it is a it is a strategy type game where you start with a, a certain amount of money and you go to different places and you buy. Um, well, in Taipan, you buy spices and things like that. In Dope Wars, you you buy drugs. <laughs> so you go to different places. And, uh, you know, if heroin's cheap here, but uh, cocaine is expensive, you would buy low, sell high, and then go to other areas. And, of course, there were random elements where you could get uh, uh, attacked or, or uh, <laughs> I think, arrested and things like that. Uh, I will put links to the show notes to some versions of those games that you can play online. But that's basically um, what a door game was. It was a game where uh, callers called in and took turns one at a time. Uh, playing these different games. Now, later on, door games migrated into multi-user games. There was Tele Arena, and then um, they all kind of fell under the umbrella of MUDs, which stood for multi-user dungeons. And there are uh, still MUDs that people play today that you can uh, Telnet into and play different MUDs or whatever. But that's what doors were. They were games that you could play on BBSs. So thanks for uh, sending in that voicemail message, Rich, and asking that question. Uh, Rich mentioned that he is just now getting into the retro scene, and uh, as I've said before, uh, what a great time <laughs> to be getting in. First of all, if you're just getting into retro stuff now, especially Commodore 64, but all the old computers, um, there are fantastic emulators. I use WinVice on my Windows machines. WinVice is, for all intents and purposes, a completely accurate emulation of the Commodore 64. There are Slight differences when you start getting into advanced things as far as emulating different hardware ports and things like that. But if you want to play games, you want to listen to music, you want to look at the pictures, stuff like that, uh, and you're just getting started, there's there's really no better way, uh, in my opinion, to get started than to download WinVice. Um, every game that's played on Sprite Castle is hosted on the website. So if you hear a game that we're talking about, you can go to SpriteCastle.com, go up to the download section and download this week's game. Um, if you go to gamebase64.com, you can look up uh, any game that's in their library, and they have uh, tens of thousands of games. I think they're close to uh, 20,000, actually. And uh, you can look up a game, any game, and uh, once you, you search for the game, you'll find information about it. And on the right-hand side, you'll see a little hyperlink that says uh, Latif, L-A-T-I-F. And if you click on that, you can download... Uh, the game in D64 format. Now, D64 is a virtual 
uh, Commodore 64 disc, uh, 1541 you know, emulated version of a disc, a disc image. So if you can't find, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that uh, any game you'd be looking for wouldn't be on game base, but you can always go to Google and just search for a, a game title and then add uh, D64 to your Google search. And that will almost uh, always instantly uh, turn up the disc you're looking for. If you are knowledgeable about uh, torrents, BitTorrent, things like that, you can always go find the, the uh, game base collection Search for Game Base 64, GB64, and, and the collection's pretty big at this point. It's uh, several gigs because um, they include lots of things like magazine scans and, and uh, uh, documentation, music files, and things like that. But you could download the entire Game Base 64 collection that way, and uh, that should keep you busy <laughs> for quite a while. If you do decide you want to move past emulation and get into uh, playing around with physical machines, you can always check eBay or Craigslist for Commodore 64 hardware. I still see Commodore. There's a Commodore collection right now, my local uh, Craigslist site. There, it's a computer and disk drives and a few other things, and a bunch of disks, and I think it's $80. Um, so you can still find stuff pretty reasonably priced. Also, ask around. If you have coworkers that are of the age, you know, com- people that are in computers that are in their uh, 40s, uh, maybe late thirties, maybe fifties. Um, those are the people that were playing around with these old eight bit computers. So you never know. They may have uh, uh old computer system just sitting boxed up in their garage and they've been uh, either forgot about it or they're waiting for someone to ask about it and give it to. So it never hurts to ask around, you know, and see uh, what people have. If you get into the, uh, you know, having the physical machines, there's all kinds of cool stuff. I talk about the 1541 ultimate, there's the easy flash cartridge where you can flash games onto a cartridge. Tons of new devices uh, still coming out for a Commodore computer. My Commodore is hooked up to a uh, video switch box along with my Apple, a few other things that run to a 42-inch flat-screen television. So, um, you know, uh, there's all kinds of stuff out there. So anyway, if you're, if you're wanting to get into retro computers, now is a great time to do it. As for news, uh, the first thing I have here noted is that... Um, we have added a Facebook page for the Throwback Network. Throwback Network is a group of retro-themed podcasts. There are a lot of video game and computer-themed podcasts, but there are several shows on the network that are not uh, game-related. So if you like retro podcasts, you can always find this and all those shows over at throwbacknetwork.net, or you could go find our brand-new uh, Facebook page, which is at facebook.com forward slash throwbacknetwork. You could go there, like the page, and every new episode of every podcast that's on Throwback Network gets cross-posted to that page. So you can always go to that page and find out uh, uh, what the latest episodes that have been released. I've also added a new link to SpriteCastle.com. It is the, I believe it's the top link on the right-hand menu side now, and it goes to the SpriteCastle.com spreadsheet. This is where I keep track of the current shows, um, there's, you'll find three, uh, actual sheets. If you're familiar with spreadsheets down in the bottom left-hand corner, there are three different sheets to click on. One is, uh, audio. That is the current version of the podcast you are listening to and that I am recording. And you can find, uh, every episode of the audio version of the podcast. If you click on video, there was a, a time where I was doing a video version of Sprite Castle and you can find all the games that are reviewed uh, on that. I don't think I added hyperlinks to that, but I may, uh, they're all on YouTube. Uh, you could go to youtube.com forward slash Sprite Castle and find all of them, but I may add links to the individual ones on there if you want. Uh, 
But the third tab is requests. And so every time someone sends me a request for a game to review on the show, that's where it goes. So I put it on there. I put your name on there. And when it's time to record a new episode, I go pluck one off that list. Or sometimes I pluck them, you know, out of the air or <laughs> other orifices. Um, but uh, if there's a, a game that you'd like to hear played and talked about on Sprite Castle, Go ahead and send it to me through Twitter or Facebook, email, however you want to do that, and I will go put it on the spreadsheet. You can also look at that tab and see what other games people have requested and uh, see what some of the upcoming shows might be. There have been a few new Commodore 64 games released since the last episode. Uh, there's a new port of the uh, or recreation of Atari's classic Sprint 1 game. That is the black and white uh, overhead racing game that was kind of the predecessor to Championship Sprint, originally released in 1978. Um, there's a new hacked version of The Last Ninja. I am I love The Last Ninja, but I'm terrible at it. <laughs> I always get killed really early. And so uh, someone has released a new cracked copy of The Last Ninja with 11 cheats built into it. Um, there's also has been a new version I mentioned on our previous episode, Karen and the Tangled Tentacles. Uh, it is a point and click adventure that has been released for the Commodore 64 and they have released an updated version 1.1. I will have links to all of those listed on the show notes. If you want to download those and check those out either on an emulator or if you have the ability on a real Commodore 64. And now let's get to this episode's King of the Castle. This episode's King of the Castle is Rob Snyder, who correctly guessed uh, the song that was played at the end of the last episode. Rob correctly guessed the song Octopus Garden by the Beatles on the last episode in which we covered the Goonies. And I talked in that episode about the octopus that was originally in the movie, but got cut out and uh, actually makes an appearance in the game. But I caught some of you... Cheating, I guess it's not really cheating, but I caught a few people uh, jumping to the end of the episode uh, just to guess the song and become the king of the castle, which is, is actually a little flattering. But um, So this is just a reminder. I let it slide last time, but there are new rules to the king of the castle. And you not only need to identify the song, but you need to tell me how it relates to the episode. So if you don't do that, then it is not considered a winning uh, entry into the King of the Castle uh, contest. So because of that, the connections between the songs and the show titles are going to get a little bit more difficult from here on out. Uh, so you will need to not only identify the song, which might be kind of easy to do, but you need to tell me how it relates to the game or the show title. So if you would like to be the next episode's King of the Castle, all you need to do is correctly identify the secret 8-bit song played during the show's closing credits and its connection to the episode's theme in some way. For, again, Octopus's Garden, you could have mentioned that there was an octopus either that appeared in the game or that was cut out of the movie. Once you have identified the secret song, the first person to send the song title and the connection to me, either through Facebook, Twitter, email, or the show's voice mailbox, will be the next king of the castle. All those contacts are listed in the show's closing credits. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy who just hit my lawnmower. Am I great or what? Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack. 
crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. So when I hear the name Seamus, I immediately think of Irish people and Irish food, of which I am one of those things. <laughs> I'm not Irish food, but I am uh, an Irish person. I have an Irish name, so that's close enough. Uh, and so I, I thought, you know what would be really good to eat for this episode would be corned beef and hash. Now, I went... Uh, to visit my Uncle Joe. I went to visit all my relatives up in Chicago a few years ago, and my Uncle Joe who passed away uh, two years ago now. My Uncle Joe makes a big uh, breakfast. He would make a big breakfast on Sunday morning, invite all the relatives, my grandma and aunt and uncles, and everybody would come over and have breakfast. And um, on one Saturday morning, he made corned beef and hash. And I made the mistake of calling it hash browns, <laughs> which turns out is very offensive to someone who makes corned beef and hash. Uh, and so I was given a complete lesson on what corned beef and hash is. Uh, and I've been looking for good corned beef and hash ever since I came back. And I found it at a place called Jimmy's Egg. Now, Jimmy's Egg started in Oklahoma City in 1980. And for about 20 years, we were the only state uh, that had a Jimmy's Egg, although now they have expanded and there are another 10 locations of what I read in Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. But Jimmy's Egg, there's one right down the street from me. We go there for breakfast and I've never even noticed that they had corned beef and hash. I always get the, uh, uh, they have like a breakfast sampler kind of thing. They also have uh, something comparable to a garbage plate which uh, Rob Sherwin and uh, Aardvark and the guys that live up towards uh, Rochester introduced me to, a garbage plate, which is kind of everything <laughs> all thrown into one plate at once. Um, and um, uh, so anyway, I normally get one of those things, and then I searched online. I was like, where can I find corned beef and hash in Oklahoma City? And it came up and told me Jimmy's Egg. So I went to Jimmy's Egg and uh, had a, a very delicious corned beef and hash and as I sat there eating it, I talked to my wife all about Seamus, and she told me that uh, she could care less <laughs> about hearing about my old games. So anyway, that's enough talk about breakfast food. Let's get to bacon this week's episode. Seamus was published for the Commodore 64 in 1983 by Synapse Software. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. Synapse Software was known as Synsoft in the UK. They released 22 Commodore 64 games under the Synapse Software brand uh, from 1983 to 1986. Some of those titles include Blue Max, Ford Apocalypse, Load Runner's Rescue, Necromancer, Rainbow Walker, and Zaxxon, and of course, Seamus and Seamus 2. Synapse was purchased by Broderbun in 1984. So some of these titles were released under that even uh, under the Synapse brand, even after Broderbund purchased them. Seamus was programmed by William Mataga, who is now known as Catherine Mataga. Catherine is the uh, owner of JungleVision.com, which is a, a popular game developer. She developed such titles as Stronghold, Magnetron, Zeppelin, and of course Seamus 1 and 2. She also developed the BTZ, which is the Better Than Zork text parser. And this is a uh, engine that would be used to develop and play text adventure games. She worked on Mindwheel, Essex, Brimstone, 
uh, and Breakers, which were very popular text adventure games back in the day. Uh, if you would like to know more about Catherine Mataga, uh, she has been interviewed on the Antic Podcast uh, in episode 82. So I will definitely add a link to that in the show notes. I listened to that before I recorded this episode. It was very insightful and very well done uh, and goes into a lot of information about not only uh, Synapse Software, but Seamus specifically. Uh, she has continued on her uh, programming career. She worked on Neverwinter Nights, Rampage 2, Raymond, uh, Dragon's Lair, the 2001 edition that came out uh, on the home consoles and worked on Grand Theft Auto Advance. So uh, she's had a very successful programming career. This version of Seamus was adapted to the Commodore 64 by Jack L. Thornton Jr. I have searched, and this is the only game title that I can find a credit for Jack L. Thornton Jr., Listed on, so I'm not sure if he only did this one, if he uh, went by different names for other ones, but it kind of seems like this is the only port that he did. In pop culture context, this game resembles Berserk, which was released by Stern in 1980 and kind of has a little bit of a Robotron theme uh, or feel to it, which was uh, 1982 Williams. The cover artwork and some of the backstory, uh, the backstory not so much, but the, the artwork that's on uh, the front of the box almost gives the game a Doctor Who feeling. Um, the the character Seamus kind of appears as a Doctor Who-like character, I would say, and uh, you're being attacked by robots in the future. So, in fact, the cover has Seamus throwing uh, a knife, and he's facing uh, three different styles of robots, which we will talk. There are two of the robots uh, that are on tank treads and a couple of different robots. The, uh, the robots on tank treads are actually holding pistols, and then you can see the other robots uh, bouncing around. The artwork was done by Timothy Charles Boxel. Uh, he did artwork for a lot of Synapse programs, including Commies from Mars, Image of the Beast, and Death Rattle. And he uh, went on into the uh, movie business. So he got out of the uh, art business and moved into the movie business. According to the back of the box, the object of the game is to reach the very core of Shadow's Lair and destroy him. This is accomplished by progressively exploring the various colored levels of the layer and accumulating the greatest number of points, bonuses, and extra lives. In order to overcome all the obstacles and dangers that infest the layer and triumph in the final battle with Shadow, you must familiarize yourself with all 32 rooms of each of the colored levels and retrieve the correct colored keys for all of the passages. This is the only way to gain entry from one level to another. Unlike text adventure games, Seamus can only be mastered by a long and arduous training period in which your reflexes are sharpened to a point where you can deal with the incredible speed and viciousness of the attacks of the Shadow and his henchmen. So I, I like that um, right off the bat they, they tell you that there's going to be more action in this game than in a text adventure. <laughs> it's going to take more 
hand-eye coordination than typing words at a prompt. So uh, in, in that aspect, they did warn you. Uh, inside the manual, uh, there's information about the shadow. It says, the arch-villain himself is constantly monitoring your activities in his lair. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Be extremely careful when you hear a low-pitched pulsing. This is a signal that Shadow is about to enter the room. You cannot kill Shadow since he wears tri-gamma armor. You can, however, stun him. He remains stunned only for a short time, after which you had better move quickly. Only in the deepest recesses of level red will you find the answer to this puzzle. This is uh, comes from a time, and I was going to talk about this later, but I might as well talk about it now. It comes from a time when a lot of the details about a game were presented in the manual. So if you just downloaded this game and gave it to a friend, you're like, oh, you can't kill the shadow. Why not? I don't know. You shoot him. But now, you know that you've read the manual or the back of the box, you know that he wears tri-gamma armor. <laughs> so it's those little details that uh, uh, code uh, was precious back then. Line Lines of code, you know, were valuable. It wasn't like today where... If you just want to include something else, you just throw it in. So what if uh, the program goes up a couple of K or a couple of megs or gigs or whatever? Nobody cares. Uh, but back then, you had really small constraints in which you had to work. So a lot of the details, the names of things were presented in the manual and not necessarily in the game. Here's the introduction as it appears in the manual. You finally made it. Your nerves and your guts tell you he's here and the smell. The sickening sweet odor of decomposing fruit, the shadow's trademark. Now, all the, wait, why is this <laughs> trademark decomposing fruit? The shadow's trademark. Now, all that's left to find and destroy him before he returns the compliment. You know it's going to be this hard. After all, it is the 21st century, and your ion shivs are probably the most dangerous weapons in this part of the galaxy. They can drop a fully screened sniffer droid at 300 meters. Out of the corner of your eye, a small black shape darts up to the door and noiselessly enters the building across the rocket pad. The memory of your last encounter with the shadow jolts you like a neuro-stunner set on Max. Images of robo-droids that just don't know when to quit. Dark, sneaky, whirling drones from a time-slip star system. And the lightning-quick snap-jumpers that fry you for looking at them cross-eyed flicker through your mind. Still, you've handled them before. The big boy himself, Shadow, is the one you're after. As you silently enter the door coordinates into your teleporter, the scanner indicates that there are four colored levels of 32 rooms each, and every room is bristling with danger. You know it won't be a high school prom when you transport into the shadow's lair, but there's no turning back. So with a grim chuckle, you reach for the bottle of Nervo Stim and energize the transporter. You're ready as the stim slides down warmly and your biosensors click into high gear. Tell the shadow that Seamus is here. So again, you get this fun little backstory, you get some information here, you get, uh, you know, words like nervo stem and uh, your biosensors, which have nothing to do with the game, but kind of set this fun little atmosphere about the game. And obviously, uh, there are some information uh, facts about the game presented in there, like how many rooms and levels and things like that. But uh, that stuff is covered in the game. So uh, that brings us to the title screen. The title screen has scrolling blocks around the border, and you will hear the theme from Alfred Hitchcock Presents playing in the background. Then you see the words William Mataga's Seamus, adapted for the Commodore 64 home computer by Jack L. Thornton Jr., copyright 1983, Synapse Software, all rights reserved. Note, 
unauthorized duplication is in violation of federal law and subject to criminal prosecution. So remember, kids, stabbing robots is good. Copying software, bad. Past this, you get to the menu screen. Uh, you will see the high score and the last score. The last score is actually important because when you die in this game, it immediately goes back to the menu. It doesn't pause and say game over, uh, and it goes really fast. So you may not see what your score was. So the last score is always shown on the menu screen. Then there's a cast of characters. We have Seamus, that's you. The Shadow, that's the bad guy. An extra life, uh, which looks like a little bubbling potion. Then you have the three bad guys, the Spiral Drone, the Robo Droid, and the Snap Jumper. And uh, then you have the Keyhole and Mystery Treasure, which is a question mark, and it's either treasure or disaster. Uh, and so, actually, when you get in the Mystery Treasure, sometimes you get an extra life, or sometimes you will hear this little tone. And the Shadow will immediately show up and try to kill you. Uh, there are four maps that you can choose. The default is original. There are... Um, four levels that you can select and the default is novice and you press F3 to select which map F5 to select the difficulty and F7 to start the game. This is actually one pet peeve I had with the game is that the fire button does not start the game. Uh, especially I play on a, a fairly large TV. So I have to scoot back away from the TV with the joystick. And then I had to scoot up each time to hit F7, uh, to restart the game. As I mentioned, there are four difficulty grades, novice, advanced, experience, and expert, and four versions of the map that carry the names of secret agents and detectives, and they are named Marlowe, Clouseau, Holmes, and Bond. The controls of the game are pretty simple. Again, you control Seamus. You can move in eight directions using the joystick, uh, connected to joystick port one, it mentions. You could shoot your ion shivs in any of eight directions by pressing the trigger button on the joystick and moving the stick in the desired direction. So you can only, it's like, think of it like, uh, well, like Berserk, where you could shoot in any of eight directions, but you have to be moving, uh, you know, in one of those directions. Or you can hold down the fire button and just press the joystick. So if you want to shoot rapidly to the right, you can hold down the button and then just keep tapping the stick to the right and you will keep shooting. Um, the manual says ion shivs or ionic short, high intensity vaporizers. These weapons are banned in every part of the galaxy. They totally disintegrate any life form upon contact unless shielded by tri-gamma body armor. Caution. You can only have two ion shivs on the screen at any one time. So basically you can only fire two shots at a time. Uh, and then we have that little thing about the tri-gamma body armor, which really only means you can't kill the shadow. When you shoot the shadow, when he shows up, um, he, he freezes, but it's only temporarily enough time for you to uh, get away. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, one thing I noticed about this game right off the bat is that diagonal shots are a lot easier in this game than they are in Berserk. Um, for some reason, in Berserk, the angle of diagonals never makes sense to me. and They never seem to go in the, the angle that I think they should go. Uh, but in this game, they do. They go exactly diagonal, exactly how they should. So um, that makes things a little easier. In the easier levels or lower levels of this game, 
the robots only shoot in four directions. Now, I have seen it. I have got far enough in the game where I have seen them shoot diagonally. But for the most part, they only shoot uh, up, down, left, or right. And you can use that to your advantage. Um, and you're going to need every advantage you could get in this game because it is hard. Uh, again, when you're entering a new room... Uh, you don't know how many uh, robots are going to be in there. So a lot of times when I entered a room, I would just hold down the button and start firing in hopes of uh, surviving long enough to see what was in the room. Uh, and again, uh, as I mentioned, you could only have two shots. You could only have two shots on the screen at a time. They can have a mini. <laughs> uh, also, you can shoot... Uh, incoming shots that has happened before. It doesn't mention that in the manual, but I have seen that uh, happen quite a bit. Let's get to the gameplay. Uh, I describe this game as Berserk meets Robotron with just a tad bit of Montezuma's Revenge. I think um, the game, not <laughs> not the Bell Syndrome. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think the thing about Montezuma's Revenge, I think what reminds me about that is that you have to get keys uh, and put them in locks to unlock parts of the maze before you can proceed. Obviously, um, a lot of the gameplay is um, reminiscent of Berserk. Uh, the walls are electrified, so if you touch the walls, they will kill you. If you touch the mon- actually, if you touch anything except for you know the bonus stuff or the keys, it will kill you. So if you touch a monster, it will also kill you. Um, the monsters do not pause. When you enter a room, like in Berserk, that's different. So when you walk in, immediately they start heading towards you and firing. And there are many times when you will walk into a room and be instantly killed. It happens. Um, the robots, the number of robots in a room are random. There, there seems to be a range. But if you die on the first level, I noticed over and over, sometimes there's one. Sometimes there's up to uh, four. Sometimes five. Uh, and, of course, those numbers go up as you raise the difficulty or as you advance through the game. Uh, but there will be a random number and random placement of the robots. One really tricky and annoying thing the robots do, or some of the robots do, uh, is that when they approach you from the left or the right, they move up just to where they avoid your horizontal shot. So... Uh, unlike a lot of games where you could just stand in one place and they will, you know, line up with you uh, on the horizon and start coming towards you. These guys move up just enough to clear your shots and come towards you. And when you move up, they move up further. Uh, and eventually you'll move up and you'll hit your head on the electrified wall and die. Uh, so one, uh, tactic is to move down. And then when they get close, shoot diagonally, um, or you can try to squeeze under them and shoot up. Uh, but they are very, uh, it, it's a very annoying and not, not annoying like it's bad in the programming, but annoying as in it's a very, uh, <laughs> good tactic on the robots part that are trying to kill you. Also, the robots regenerate not only whenever you die, but every time you enter a room. So if you enter a room and there's three or four robots, you clear them all. You leave, and then you have to double back to go through that room. All the robots will regenerate and be there again. And it'll be a random number and random placement uh, once again. Now, if you hang around in the room for too long, the shadow will appear, and you will hear a tone, and the shadow will appear from, I think he always comes from one of the four corners. He may come from uh, one of the four directions as well, but I think usually he comes from a corner. You'll hear this little low tone, and he comes, and he comes fast. So he's kind of like the evil Otto uh, in Berserk. The difference is 
that he can be shot, but he cannot be killed. So many of us have stood in Berserk as Evil Otto has come and shot him just to uh, get our frustrations out before running off screen. Uh, so here, uh, the shadow can be shot and he'll be paused, which will give you enough time to exit. Now, the problem is, if you have shot and paused him between you and the exit, you're kind of screwed <laughs> because you have to, you're still going to have to get around him. You can't go through him when he's paused. So you may have just blocked off your only exit. And then when he wakes up, he's still going to come firing at you really fast. Um, and then, you know, so you may be able to pause him and get around, but uh, you may not be able to do that. Another interesting feature is that when you clear all the robots on a level, you begin to move much more quickly. So it's easy to navigate the electrified hallways when you're walking slowly, uh, but the minute all the robots are gone, you begin walking very quickly. So and there were many times where I cleared all the robots out of a room only to walk directly into an electrified wall and have to start all over again. As I mentioned, there are keys and keyholes. Uh, and they are different colors, so you will find a key and hang on to it. Eventually, you will put it into a lock, uh, which will open up another portion of the maze. There are four levels. They are black, blue, green, and red, and each one has 32 rooms. Uh, so if you're doing the math, that makes for a total of 128 rooms. And the shadow will be waiting for you in the last room, and that is the only room in which the shadow can be shot and destroyed. So... If you make it through all 128 rooms, spoiler, you will not make it through all 128 rooms. You will face the shadow, shoot him, and you will win. I will add links uh, to the maps in the show notes. And uh, so if you have a really good uh, shooting trigger finger and you're really quick, uh, maybe you can follow these maps and uh, find the final room where you will face the shadow. I did find that this game has some questionable collision detection. There were many times that I shot the shadow and watched my bullet go through him right before he killed me. Um, there were a few times where I thought that uh, maybe I had, you know, skimmed past a robot only to get killed. Uh, but I definitely saw some weird things going on with the shots. Not every time, but uh, enough times for me to notice. Seamus is not a high-scoring game. The, uh, you get 10 points for each robot that you kill, and that includes the robo-droids, the spiral drones, and the snap jumpers. Uh, I guess I could mention real quick the difference between those. The robo-droids um, are kind of like Daleks, I guess I would say. Um, I mean, they're really slow moving, and they kind of move, uh, uh, you know, just move around a perimeter. Then there are the spiral drones, which look more like something maybe from Robotron. Uh, they have these little spinners that go around, and they will come at you, but they're not usually not smart enough to go around a wall. So th this is the type, like in Berserk, where you have those robots that uh, will move like up when you move up, down when you move down, so on and so forth. Uh, they're kind of like that. And then you have the snap jumpers, um, which just flicker and move around very quickly all over the place. Uh, and so they will, they're the ones... When you get to levels that have a bunch of those, those are the ones that are most likely to kill you. Also, um, robo-droids and spiral drones shoot at you. Uh, I don't think that the snap jumpers do. Maybe they do. Uh, 
Uh, usually when those showed up, I, I would get killed so quickly that it didn't matter. Uh, but you get 10 points for shooting each one of those. Uh, you get 200 points for clearing a room. And then the mystery symbol, when you get that, occasionally you get uh, points for that. Uh, so it's not definitely not a high-scoring game. I think my high score right now is uh, eight or 9,000, something like that. The manual does include a few, uh, four, in fact, playing tips. Here are the four playing tips from inside the manual. Number one, observe the various characteristics of your opponents and take advantage of their weaknesses. Number two, practice, practice, practice. Number three, play with a friend who can keep track of where you are in the lair while you fight for your life. And number four, retain your sense of humor. I would say overall, those are pretty terrible playing tips. I don't know that any of those would help you. Um, I suppose a friend helping you map the dungeon might help. Um, practicing, you know, goes without saying. Uh, figuring out what he, the way each robot works is the same thing. Uh, I did not have a sense of humor. I got very angry playing this game. <laughs> um I did see uh, one little thing of trivia, and this is Commodore-specific. If uh, I will add this to the show notes as well, but if you load the game and before you type run, if you poke 48438,165, followed by 61190,165, you will have unlimited lives. And this is something that uh, happened occasionally in Commodore games. People would find the memory addresses where things like that were stored, and so you would load the game and then poke different values into memory and change, uh, you know, those little memory registers or memory locations, uh, and affect the gameplay. So that's one that uh, somebody found for this game. Obviously now, uh, the version of Seamus that I got from uh, game base 64 has, uh, some cheats built in. So if you want to see how far the game goes, you could turn on things like invincibility or infinite lives, uh, through a little menu system. I only found a couple of reviews uh, for this game. Your Commodore Magazine gave this game 4 out of 5, which sounds pretty reasonable. And Zap gave it 5 out of 10. And I wanted to find out why that was so low. So I tracked down a scanned copy of the magazine. It was from July, but uh, what was interesting, it was from July 86. So that was three years after this game. It was almost four years after this game uh, hit the market. So uh, obviously... Every year with the Commodore 64, uh, with any system really, but uh, specifically in those old days, uh, if you look at, you know, the games released in 82 versus 83, there were just huge leaps in 83 to 84 and so on and so forth. So uh, for a review in 86, they were reviewing a, you know, three, almost four-year-old port of a game. So, uh, you know, only giving it five out of 10, I, I can only assume they were comparing it to, you know, games that were being released in 86 versus talking about, you know, how it, uh, played and how it stood up to other games from 1983. This game appeared on lots of eight bit computer systems. It was released for the Apple II, the Atari eight bit, which is what it was originally developed on, uh, the PC 6001, the PC booter, uh, DOS, a TI-99 4A, the TRS-80 Coco, and the VIC-20. It was also ported to the Game Boy Color. Uh, there was a sequel to this game, which is quite a bit different than this game. It has aspects of... I've read that it's Pitfall combined with Breakout. So if you can imagine that. <laughs> um, but that is Seamus 2, and it is available for the Atari 8-bit computer systems and the Commodore 64. How to play this game today? 
Uh, Seamus was released, as I mentioned, for the Game Boy Color in 2000, although that version is pretty different than the Commodore 64 version. Everything is zoomed in and much bigger. So on each, on the Commodore and on the other 8-bit computer versions, uh, each room is a screen, but on the Game Boy Color, you have to scroll around in each single room before leaving and going to the next room. Seamus 1 and 2 were released for iOS in 2001, but I just checked the iTunes store and they no longer are available. So apparently uh, they were released for a while and have been pulled back. So if you have a jailbroken iOS device, I'm sure you can find those and play it on your phone or iPad. If you don't, then uh, it looks like you're currently out of luck. I did find two online Flash versions available to play of this game, but one is a port of the DOS version, which is probably closer to the Commodore version. And the other is a port of the Game Boy Color version, which is not very close to the Commodore version at all. So I will add those to the show notes with the caveat that um, if you really want the Commodore 64 experience, you can either check it out on YouTube or um, just download an emulator and try it that way. And now we'll talk about my personal memories of Seamus. All right, time I don't think I ever played this game on the Commodore 64, but I do have memories of playing it on our IBM PC Junior. We had a PC Junior when they first came out. In fact, we had the the little uh, chiclet-style keyboard (laughs) that uh, was uh, wireless, infrared, that people were able to send back in, which we did, uh, and get a real keyboard. But we played Seamus on that, so I do remember uh, playing the game. Um, on the Commodore, you know, this was a uh, 83. And by that time there were also ports of, of Robotron and other games like that. And, and honestly, uh, you know, I, I think, um, it, it was a good arcade style game. And actually I could see this as an arcade game. I mean, it, it has all the features of, of Berserk and, um, uh, Robotron and those type of games. So I could see something like this in the arcade, Um, but on the Commodore, there were just so many games that came out so quickly that, uh, uh, it just didn't, I I don't think I ever ran across it back then. You know, like I said, I played it on the PC junior. And by the time I got my C64 in 1985, there were a lot, uh, more advanced games coming out at the time. So I never went back and uh, found this one. For graphics, I give the game three out of five ion shivs. Uh, they do their job, and you can tell the difference between people, but they are not very advanced. For music, I give it two out of five. There's really only the song at the beginning, and after that, uh, there is no music. For sound effects, I give it three out of five. Uh, there are sound effects in the game, and a few of the sound effects, like uh, the Shadow's appearance, actually help gameplay, but uh, they're, they're very uh, simplistic. Uh, single voice sound effects, so they're not very advanced. My overall score of this game is three and a half out of five Ion Shivs. Honestly, I probably would have given it four if they hadn't released that great port of Berserk uh, in 2014. So it, it's a, uh, a fast-paced version of Berserk. It's a very difficult game, um, but that version of Berserk is so good that this kind of seems uh, not quite as good in comparison.
Thanks again for tuning in to Sprite Castle. The next game I will be covering is Little Computer People by Activision. If you'd like to play Little Computer People before the next show is released, head on over to SpriteCastle.com and click on the downloads link at the top of the page where you can download Commodore 64 emulators and all the games that have been reviewed on the show. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any other episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at RobOHara at RobOHara.com, contact me on Twitter at Commodore, follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Sprite Castle, or leave me a voicemail on the Flack Podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the SpriteCastle.com RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know Flack, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all these shows at robohara.com forward slash podcasts. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore is Awesome, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. For links to these and more websites, check out the list of links on the right-hand side of SpriteCastle.com. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to throwing eye on shivs, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. <laughs>